if the animal isn't choosing to engage, it's not enrichment, full stop. So, so our litmus test for whether or not something is actually enriching is, does the animal have control over those outcomes? And if the answer is no, it's not enrichment, period. Hey everyone, in this episode I chat with Emily Strong and Allie Bender, authors of Canine Enrichment for the Real World. Emily, Allie, and I get to geek out a little bit and chat about things like agency, modal action patterns, and stereotypies in dogs. But of course, we also dive deep into what enrichment really is and why it matters so much in aggression cases. And this episode is sponsored by AggressiveDog.com, where you can find a variety of educational offerings with a focus on helping dogs with aggression, including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, a three-day virtual event happening from October 2nd to 4th, 2020, with 10 amazing speakers, all experts in their field. You can find out more by going to thelooseleashacademy.com. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Shikashio. I'm here with the amazing Emily Strong and Ali Bender. So we've got two special guests on our show today. They are the authors of Canine Enrichment for the Real World, which I actually got gifted a copy of when I was at the APDT conference. John Luke from Dogwise handed me a book and Emily just happened to be there doing an author signing. So I brought it over to her. She signed it for me, so I've got to find Allie at some point in the future so she can sign it for me as well. Um, I will say welcome, Emily, first so they can hear your voice. Hello. And welcome, Allie. Hi. And I will give you a little bit of background information on these two. So Allie Bender, she's a certified dog behavior consultant, a CBDT-KA, a SBA, which is a shelter behavior affiliate. Uh, she's the co-owner and founder of Pet Harmony LLC and the co-author of Canine Enrichment for the Real World. She believes in working with animals by addressing underlying causes behind undesirable behaviors. She also believes in working with people to find the best solutions for your situation in household. Emily Strong is also a certified dog behavior consultant and a CP. BT-KA, which is a certified parrot behavior person. Yes. Different. Okay. <laughs> and she is also an SBA, so shelter behavioral aff- affiliate, and is co-owner of Pet Harmony LLC. She is committed to least intrusive, minimally aversive, and science-based approach to training, behavior modification, and teaching people. She loves working with learners of all species, and the list of species she's worked with so far includes dogs, cats, horses, parrots. Something that I can't even pronounce what that is. <laughs> Ramp bastards. Okay. So the toucans and the toucanets, the little, the long, the big nosed guys. <laughs> yeah, I learned something new on every podcast. Uh, COVID, a wide variety of other bird species rabbits, ferrets, hamsters, rats, mice, horses, donkeys, pigs, goats, tortoises, geckos, snakes, pygmy, octopi, fish, and a few species of insects i th- i think you have competition with ken ramirez on the number of species that you've trained that's I, quite impressive i would never make that assertion i think <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll have to ask ken next time i talk to him H- hannah Brannigan <laughs> said that ken is dumbledore and i was like yeah yes that's that is true ken, <laughs> ken is dumbledore, and i'm not going to compete with dumbledore <laughs> that's fair so so i you know again i can't recommend your your book enough i read it um you know quite thoroughly uh, last year as soon as it was given to me and you know it's the the title i think is actually a little bit deceiving because when you see it's like canine enrichment you're like okay canine enrichment great dogs need it what else is involved and so i started digging into this book and i saw, found so many amazing nice little diamonds in there so you talk about things get into things that are so important like instinctive behavior socializing something called agency and of course, you talk about the thing I'm most interested in is aggression and how it applies to aggression. So I'd love to dig, you know, dig deep into that during this podcast. But um, let's talk first about why you two kind of decided to write this book. What was your inkling of why? What got you into this? I'll let Emily answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is a kind of a funny story. So the short answer is we we never intended to write a book. It wasn't uh, uh, like neither of us thought that we could 
write a book. Um, and then uh, a friend, our mutual friend of ours was at an APDT conference in 2015. And she got to talking with John from Dogwise. And um, he was telling her that Dogwise had been wanting somebody to write a book on enrichment for 10 years. Um, but the reason they were having a hard time kind of finding the author to do that is because what they specifically wanted was somebody who would bridge the gap between the, the textbooks, the really kind of intense, dense um, information about enrichment and all of the websites that exist with, with resources on how to do it and different ideas and games. And so Sherry was like, hey, I, I know the person. This is her jam. This is what she does. So she came back from the conference and she was like, Emily, you should write this book for Dogwise. And I was like, I can't write a book. What are you talking about? Like, who am I? I'm not, I'm just some nobody. Um, and she's like, just talk to them. So I uh, got on the phone with John and Larry some other people, I don't remember who all was on the call. And we were talking about what their vision was and what my background was. And, and um, we just kind of realized that we were meant for each other. <laughs> like <laughs> This was exactly what I do. But at the time I was working at a sanctuary with Allie, that's where Allie and I met. And um, Allie and I were starting many of the projects that we're currently running today. And, um, and so I, I told them, I was like, you know, I, I can't do this book without Allie. We do everything together. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, she and I, we kind of complement each other's strengths. And so um, would you be interested or open to having co-authors? And they were like, well, we've never done that before, but sure, why not? So I hung up the phone and then I was like, oh, right. I should probably tell Allie that I just committed her to writing a book. <laughs> so the next day I was like, guess what, Allie? We're writing a book. <laughs> and this is probably like two days after Emily had told me about the con she was going to be talking with them. And I was like, that's amazing. I would love to write a book someday, but I'm definitely not ready for it. And two days later. Like, You're ready now. Get yep. ready. This is happening. <laughs> so listen, I'm I'm really glad that John had that conversation with you because it's really one of the best books that's come out in a while for me for behavior. So let's talk about why is enrichment so important for animals and behavior. You know, let's dive into that. It's 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 such an integral part when we're looking at behavior plans. I think to answer that, we first have to answer what enrichment is, because a lot of people don't really have a clear vision of, of how to define it, um, and which is why we spent the entire first chapter of the book talking about the history of enrichment. Um, but essentially, enrichment is meeting animals' needs so that they can be physically behaviorally and emotionally healthy. So when it comes to aggression, <laughs> enrichment is the foundation, right? Because maladaptive behaviors occur because needs are not being met, right? Um, and yes, it's more complex than that. And there's other contributing factors. But at the very minimum, at the, the basis, the foundation is that there are unmet needs that we need to address if we want to be effective at having a, a behavior modification plan, right? Allie, you want to add to that? I was just going to say the the other piece um, and something that we get comments on a lot with our book is how um, how much we included and how many categories we included in enrichment and truly including every single need. And one of the things that I know you want to talk about a little bit later, Mike, was uh, about security and how that's a need that we don't think about a lot and is something that is sorely lacking in a lot of aggression cases. Right. So in my aggression cases, and I'm sure it's the same with you two, is that what we experience is many of the dogs, because of the management we put in place, so we have dogs that, you know, we restrict walks to because they're barking and lunging at everything on the street. And then we restrict backyard access because they're fence fighting with the neighbor's dogs. And then we restrict window access because the UPS guy shows up. And so the dogs, the restrictions on the dog's natural environment are so heavy that mm -hmm. it really impacts enrichment. So let's talk about that a little bit. What are what are your uh, solutions there? What do you typically reach for in those cases? I think in in those cases, obviously, it depends on the individual, but trying to think out of the box for for meeting those needs. So something that I hear a lot with with clients is they're like, "I have to walk my dog to get physical exercise," and and you know, I ask them, but 
do you actually, <laughs> are there other ways that you could have that physical exercise need? And as we, we go through their case and household and, and time abilities and all of that, you know, we're like, oh yeah, you have five minutes here that we could do some flirt pole instead in the backyard, you know, and that's probably more physically taxing than the, the 30 minute walk that you are taking. So I think it's just re, um, reimagining what we think of and like the things that we think we have to do in order to provide a good life for our dogs and realizing that there are a lot of different options. It doesn't have to be a walk or what have you. Right. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people miss about enrichment. And we, we talk about this in the book that um, we tend to take a prescriptive approach to enrichment, which is like, I'm going to walk my dog to provide enrichment. But that's that's not actually a very efficient or an effective way to approach an enrichment st- strategy. If we really want to be effective, we need to take more of a descriptive approach, which is starting with our end goal and then working backwards to find an enrichment strategy that's going to meet that goal and then assessing whether or not it actually has. Was our hypothesis effective? So what Ali's talking about is descriptive enrichment. Instead of saying, I have to walk my dog to provide physical exercise, if we start at the end goal, my dog needs a minimum of 22 minutes of exercise a day, and then work backwards from there. How can I meet that goal? It's easier and more effective and more fun than this pressure that we put on ourselves, we have to walk the dog, right? So, um, So I think that's one of the most important takeaways that I hope people get from the book is that we, if we want to be effective and also make our lives easier, you start at the end and work backwards from there. Mm, I love that. That's sort of like this descriptive approach to it. Really, it's a great way to put it. Um, you know, it's kind of where that that mantra that was around for a while and maybe still is of exercise and discipline affection uh, kind of got brought sideways. Now, it's, it wasn't such a bad thing and at least people were getting their dogs out, but they got so focused on the exercise is so important, sort of, so that saying of a tired dog is a good dog, right? And how wrong that can go. So, talk about that. What happens when you have clients that says, you know, I just want to exercise, exercise? A tired dog is a good dog. What's the problem with that saying? Yeah. So I don't remember who originally told me this. I think it was in one of the shelters I worked in. Um, But they said, they told me we don't want to create an athlete that we can't keep up with. And I see this so much, especially here, like I live in the Chicago area. And so a lot of people get, uh, you know, adopt dogs in the summer and, and are going on these multi-mile walks or runs and then Chicago winter hits and completely stops and their dogs are bouncing off the walls. And it's like, well, yeah, because they're an athlete that <laughs> that needs to run three miles a day and you don't want to do that or you're doing a treadmill or, or you know, at the gym or something now. So um, I see that happen a lot where we, we create individuals that we can't keep up with. Right. It's like putting a dog on a treadmill so they get very fast and it's the problem is it chases cats or something. Right. Yeah. I think the thing that um is really kind of important to think about is it's it's not that um physical exercise doesn't help, right? Obviously it's incredibly important for their health. It's that it's not a panacea. And as a species, we we love our panaceas. We want something that's going to fix everything. And so, you know, when when people see that physical exercise isn't changing the behavior the way they want, the the response is more physical exercise. When really, that's one facet of many, many, many facets of enrichment. There are many needs that need to be met. And if we're not seeing that physical exercise is improving the behavior, that's because it's only one piece of the puzzle, and we need to get all of the other pieces together. Right. Right. And especially if we're exercising or attempting exercising in those environments that are so stressful for the dog. And the analogy I use with my clients is it's, you know, if you go for those walks, it's like you're stepping out into a war zone. And right. Your dog is having to battle with every single dog or whatever the stimulus is that it's having the issue with uh, many, many times during that walk. And we're just spiking those stress levels and it just can be so detrimental to the dog's behavior and the overall behavior plan. Exactly. So, So shifting here a little bit, um, you talk about agency, this word Mm -hmm. agency in your book. Tell tell us more about that. Allie, you wrote the chapter. You should be able to talk about it. I'll talk about it then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So agency is this ability to have some level of control in our environment and 
and be able to make choices that result in a desirable outcome. And this is something that we focus on a lot with ourselves and and have a hard time giving up this sense of control to other <laughs> individuals, especially our dogs. Um, and so I, I think this is a topic that we talk about probably more than, than any of the other topics um, with people. Yeah. It, so essentially, when when any learner of any species is deprived of um, a reasonable level of control over their outcomes, we see a lot of uh, behavioral fallout from that. And unfortunately, one of the most common types of behavioral fallout is one that looks like successful training. So a lot of people don't recognize when it's a problem, but it, it is a problem. It, it causes uh, problems on multiple levels, even things like the immune system um, and other maladaptive behaviors, right? So um, it, it's really the the crux of everything. And what Hal Markowitz is the... Um, well, you know, because you've read the book, but for those who listening who haven't read the book, um, Hal Markowitz is the, the guy who kind of originally came up with this concept of enrichment. And this was the thing that he, when he was um, implementing this in zoos back in the 70s, that he would talk about over and over again um, with zoos. It, it ha- if the animal isn't choosing to engage, it's not enrichment, full stop. So, so our litmus test for whether or not something is actually enriching is, does the animal have control over those outcomes? And if the answer is no, it's not enrichment, period. Um, so it is, it is the, the, the kind of defining factor of enrichment. So I'm, I'm sure some listeners are pondering this, but when we talk about agency or autonomy or empowerment, mm-hmm. uh, control of the environment, um, they're probably thinking, okay, so what do I do here with my dog that has issues with strangers coming into the home or um, on the walks? Do I just give my dog the uh, power to act on its own environment there? Or how do I modify that? How do I balance that? Yeah. So one of the things that Emily and I talk with, with probably every aggression and anxiety client that we have is flight training. Um, and uh, we're, we're working on some resources in the future for um, providing people more access to, to how to do that. But essentially, flight training for us is teaching an animal that flight is an option. You know, if we're thinking about over threshold, fight, flight, freeze, etc. Um, you don't have to <laughs> choose fight type behaviors. You could just go away in that situation. And unfortunately, um, you know, at the point where we're working with a lot of our clients, those dogs have decided flight is not an option for them. And so for like react reactivity cases, for instance, we can teach them, yes, seeing other dogs um, is awesome. You know, we can do counter conditioning or look at that or, or whatever we decide to do on the behavior modification piece of it. But if you're uncomfortable I'll also let you go away. You know, if you want to just go on the other side of me, put me in between you and the scary thing um, or, or asked to cross the street. I, I had a client recently who uh, we started on her, her flight queue and the dog progressed a little, a week quicker than I thought they would. And so by the time I, I saw them, uh, again, I was like, okay, so here's how that flight cue is going to look when when your dog gets it, <laughs> when they understand the flight training. And she was like, is that what's happening? I thought my dog was just going crazy and like couldn't walk well anymore. I was like, no, <laughs> that's flight training. Like she's asking to cross the street when there are triggers and she's putting you in between her and the other dog. And so that's a really, um, I, I think, beautiful way to provide agency in those cases without compromising safety or the other management strategies that we need to to keep animals safe and follow the law and all that. I think it's really important to to point out that giving them control over their outcomes doesn't mean that they have unlimited control, right? Just like we don't have unlimited choices in our lives either. Um, But there has to be a choice um, within the the structure of management and safety and all of that. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of people kind of jump to that sort of it if I give my animal control, that means they're going to choose to go attack somebody. And and we're not saying we're giving them all the options. <laughs> um, get, we're giving, we're setting it up so that they have um, two desirable options or three desirable options. And then they get to choose among those that we have designed and we have structured for them so that everybody's still staying, staying safe. 
Right. right. So I think another question that commonly comes up is what about dogs that are displaying behaviors without their fear-based component? So let's, uh, for instance, a livestock guardian dog, somebody approaches the property, the dog charges the fence line and starts barking, breed specific behavior. Mm-hmm. What about those kind of cases? Is agency involved there? Or, you know, yeah. Talk more about that. Yeah. So I think one of, I think there's kind of a um, multiple facets of that that we need to address. I still teach flight training to dogs who are are exhibiting eustress reactivity or you know good st- excitement stress predatory stress. Um b- for a different reason though. I'm teaching them that um if they move away from that thing it's also awesome, right? That so the only awesome o- outcome isn't chasing the things that they want to chase. They can also move away and awesome things will happen. And then um depending on the issue and depending on how we do it, we can kind of pre-mac it a little bit. So if you come and do the awesome thing with me, then I'll let you go and stare at or look at the squirrel or whatever. And then if you move away from me, so we can do this um, kind of yo-yo game where um, they get the choice to look, to do the thing that they want to do within safe, reasonable, like safety limits. Right. Um, and, but then they get to move away and it's kind of um, the law of economics, right? Supply and demand. If we, if we, if we, if they know that we're not taking that option away from them, but what we have to offer is more exciting, then the demand to do that is less, right? Because they they have the supply. We've given them the supply. Um, but the other part of that is underneath any kind of predatory behavior, there's a modal action pattern, right? There's an unlearned um, behavior sequence that's not going to go away. That dog is exhibiting it because of D- DNA as a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> um and so we have to also provide an appropriate healthy outlet for that behavior. So that might look like tri ball for, for a dog or a flirt pole um, or, you know, some, some other kind of game that's letting them do what, what they want to do. Um, I have a client right now with a dog, a little terrier breed that the yucked terriers that are bred to dig, dig burrows and flush out. And the dog is really being very destructive to their home and their yard. So the game for them is finding, um, giving him places that he can do that. And it yields really awesome results. It's more fun to do it in his designated burrowing area than it is to do it in their flower bed. Right. So I think that's the other aspect of that. We can still give him choice and control, but we're limiting his ability to do it in the places where he's being destructive. So it's all about setting the environment correctly. As, mm-hmm. as teachers. Yeah. Um, so, so how about, I'm sure you get this question a lot, is when people will say, all right, is it bad to play tug with my dog if they're tugging on somebody's arm that visits the house? <laughs> or, you know, so basically these behaviors or the, or the activities that replicate or are similar to the undesirable behaviors that the client has experienced, they worry about that. Aren't I going to make things worse by doing this activity with my dog? How do you address that? Yeah. Um, And going off of what Emily said, you know, if we can provide appropriate outlets for behaviors that are are just kind of like normal dog behaviors that we as humans don't like, (laughs) then um, across the board, we've seen it, I'm sure you've seen it this too, where they don't perform those behaviors in the inappropriate way as much as they do in the appropriate way. So like, doing foraging activities for counter surfing or playing tug with with especially adolescents who decide clothes are super fun (laughs) Um, or, uh, you know, digging pits for dogs who are digging Um, by and large, if we, if we give them appropriate outlets and like Emily said, make those appropriate outlets way more fun, then there's, there's not really a reason for them to, to choose the inappropriate way. Right. I think uh, one thing that's a little bit hard for people to wrap their heads around is this, um, this idea that dogs and, and well, really, sentient beings understand context and and that um, modal action patterns while the behaviors themselves are unlearned the context in which they happened are is learned so it's it, you the behavior is not going to go away because that is what they were born to do it's you know part of who they are um, what we need to do is teach them a different context in which to perform that those behaviors so 
so a dog is not stupid. They know the difference between a tug toy and a person's arm. We can teach them to differentiate that. And tug toy is the green light. This is the thing that you tug on. And, you know, uh, an arm is the red light. That's, that's not where we tug. We're going to do this other thing in the presence of an arm instead of tug. Right. Um, and some of it too is just management. Like, like we've been talking about this whole time. Like don't put your dog in a situation to be right there waiting by the door when, when a, when a guest walks through the door, because you're basically setting them up to fail, right? Um, so there's there's multiple components to addressing these behaviors, but understanding why they occur and um, and how to kind of channel them into an appropriate direction is a little bit of a an, a science and an art, you know. Yeah, interesting <laughs> you say that. I was just thinking about that. Part of our job as good behavior <clears throat> consultants is to convey that information to clients so it's understandable because they might have unrealistic expectations or uh, goals for their dog if it's a again something that's naturally occurring in that particular breed or that particular dog because it maybe just something the dog loves to do for a living <laughs> and so it's uh yeah it's, it's sometimes setting those realistic expectations and understanding that it could be lifelong management for a certain context right and i do want to say too i think this this whole time we've been talking about these behaviors occurring um in sort of healthy uh, in a healthy neurotypical dog. Um, but there's an extra layer of complexity when we're seeing a compulsion. And th- for that, for that, you know, no amount of enrichment and training is going to, to complete the picture without a veterinary behaviorist being involved in helping um, address that. So when we're talking about this, I think it's really important to have that asterisk of like, unless it's a compulsion, in which case we need to rope in a veterinary mm-hmm. behaviorist. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, so I don't want to actually, that's such a good topic. I, I know we want to focus on aggression, but just to touch base about compulsive behaviors and how much enrichment plays a role there, because I'm sure you two have done, seen, I, mean, I know you've seen all those studies and the research on it, and especially in, in other, uh, with other species. So talk more about that. Drop some knowledge on what enrichment, why enrichment is so important and related to compulsive behavior. Yeah. I think, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll shut up and let Allie talk in a little bit, but the thing that's immediately um, popping up in my mind is um, being able to sort of differentiate between stereotypies and compulsions. And, and to be honest, I'm not super clear on how everybody separates those because in literature, different um, researchers and experts talk about them in different ways. But the, what I learned and the way I sort of operate in my environment is that stereotypies are quote unquote, functionless repetitive behaviors, which all behavior has a function, but um, we call them functionless repetitive behaviors, whereas compulsions are functional repetitive behaviors, which means that in many, many, many cases, compulsions have some kind of medical starting point. And stereotypies are typically a result of uh, stress and boredom um, and, and stereotypies are a coping mechanism, right? So for me, that my approach is if I see an animal that has a lot of repetitive behaviors to an unhealthy extreme, I'm going to start with an enrichment and training plan, depending on the sever- severity. If it's really severe, I'm just going to jump, s- skip to the end and, and rope in a veterinary behaviorist. But for the most part, I'm going to start with an enrichment and training plan because if it's a stereotypy meeting those needs, and providing, you know, all the things that they they need to make their world better is going to resolve the behavior. If the behavior is persisting after enrichment and training has been implemented, that tells me that it it might be more of a compulsion, in which case we're we're not going to make strides without the help of a veterinary behaviorist. But in almost every case, when I've worked on a compulsion, there has been either a physical or a mental illness contributing to or completely causing that be- that behavior. Um, and so it doesn't go away without treatment. That's just, it, you know, it's like diabetes isn't going to go away without treatment, you know? Um, so, so that to me is how I, how I've learned and how I differentiate and how I operate. Um, and I'm, I'm open to being corrected by people who know more than me because I'm constantly learning. So. <laughs> and I, I think one of the things with, with stereotypic behavior and compulsions is 
like Emily was saying, we can start with an enrichment plan because really those are are manifestations of needs not being met. Um, and I, I'll use my own guy as an example who I use in in the book all the time <laughs> for like a love of my life. But um, he is, a, was, is a light chaser. His previous family had played with a laser pointer with him. And so uh, his light chasing was pretty pronounced when I first adopted him. And it's for the most part gone away but only if I'm really good at meeting his needs. And so one of the things that happens, Chicago winters, is I call it winter oso. His <laughs> name is oso. And uh, winter oso happens when it's harder for me to provide his physical exercise needs because he's not chasing critters in the backyard, which is how he enjoys getting his physical exercise needs met. Um, he, he doesn't love as much, you know, like running around the house. He loves tug uh, with us, but only my husband can play with him because built an athlete that I can't physically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so what happens in the winter, part of winter also is I see more light chasing. Um, And when I see that, I'm like, okay, I know that I didn't provide um, or meet his, his enrichment needs today. And so that's a good indicator for me. I also see it if we have um, like a more stressful day, uh, you know, if there are a bunch of thunderstorms in a row or something like that, then I'll see it crop up too. So uh, even though, you know, there are a lot of different underlying reasons that can go into a, a stereotypic or, or compulsive behavior, really at the end of the day, it's, a, it's an indicator of are we meeting needs or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. It's and. And I'll put it in the plug there. Just uh, just say no to laser pointers. So let's shift gears a little bit and get back to the aggression stuff and talk about what what really matters for a lot of aggression cases is safety and security. So there's this study you cited in the book, um, and I hope I pronounced the name correctly. It's Woody and Schechtman for the Security Motivation System. And I found that a fascinating little read in there. You want to elaborate more on that? Yeah. Um, and and the security chapter was was hard to write because there's really not a lot of research that <laughs> that is out there for any species, which is why I had to pull from a from a human study. Um, and most of the studies are looking at individuals who have OCD behaviors. And so this study was looking at uh, individuals with OCD and looking, starting to look at the the kind of mechanisms behind that and and why those behaviors are happening. And the interesting thing with that study is is they found this. Um, this process and grain of salt because this was like a single study. There needs to be a lot more research done on this before we we can say anything more decisively. <laughs> but they found that um, when there is a perceived threat, our brain starts this process and uh, and we can ignore a perceived threat for a little bit, but that that anxiety just keeps building <laughs> the longer it goes on until we decide to check it out or um, or do whatever it is that that we need to do to cope with the with the perceived threat. And then once we do the thing, and and their example was looking at um, like exploratory behaviors, you hear a noise in the kitchen, and nobody should be in the kitchen eventually you go explore <laughs> what the noise was. Um, and once you do that, then the that mechanism shuts down and you're like, okay, now I can go back to whatever it was I was doing and, and that anxiety lessens. Would you say there's a stress component, a stress stacking component there as well? Uh, yeah, I, I would think so. So uh, it's interesting. I was talking to a client yesterday and one of her questions was, you know, there's somebody working in the yard, the dog goes out and barks at it gets to see what it is, comes back in the house, but then the guy leaves and the dog goes back out and starts barking at nothing. And it's interesting. It sort of kind of relates to what you're talking about there in that there's that stress stacking. Do you think that's similar to what you're talking about with this and in, in terms of this motivation system? I think it could be, you know, if, if it's one of those things where the, where the dog was like, there was a person here, the environment, I'm not finding the source of that. And, and that 
that stress keeps building. Um, I think it could be could be related. And it's something to think, consider, especially for our clients, is that they it feels so out of the blue. And I'm sure you you two have heard that. It's sort of like this guy just happened out of the blue. But the the it's what happens in the dog's day prior, especially, can affect their behavior throughout the day, or even the next day, or even much further on down the line, depending on the incident. Right. And I think one thing that I tell people all the time is, obviously, we can't we can't know animals, thoughts, feelings, motivations, and intentions because we can't see them. But uh, we can make reasonable assumptions based on our own experiences that a lot of times that stress stacking process happens internally before there are any external signs, right? If I'm worried about something and it wakes me up at night, I'm going to lay in bed for, you know, an hour, (laughs) just getting more stressed until I finally get stressed enough to get up and do something about it. And so to somebody observing me, it might look like my behavior was out of the blue. I just all of a sudden got up and started doing something when in reality, Internally, that stress stacking process happened an hour before they actually saw any external behavior changes. So that's something that people have to remember is that we, we can't see their internal experience, but it, but we can know just because of all of the, the wealth of research out there that, um, things that are happening internally affect their external behavior long before we see them. So nothing is truly happening out of nowhere, right? We just can't see what's happening before the, the observable behaviors start. Right. And sometimes it, it, it requires a very keen observer to notice those subtleties and to notice behavior changes. And I think that takes time and and we can't fault our clients for not noticing those things. Some though can be, you can be very in tune with your dog and seeing pattern changes, but it's, it's tough thing to pick up on. So yeah. 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 What a, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, we have an extensive, uh, um, a really robust handout on body language um, that every client has to start off with for exactly that reason. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it a lot. Um, So can I think going along those lines, what about this sensory processing sensitivity that you talk about as well during in the book? Oh, yeah. I actually learned about that from the IAABC forum. We were in the process of writing the book and um, some somebody posted this study and I and I read it and it was it, fa- it was fascinating, it made so much sense. And then one of the researchers hopped on and she said, oh, oh, yeah, um, here's this other here's the context in which this research occurred. Um, so shout out to the IAABC forum for tipping me off to that that study. But um, so what it, uh, the, the study was basically saying that in humans, they identified a gene that causes sensory processing sensitivity, which just means you're more easily overstimulated by stimuli in your environment. Um, and then recently, researchers identified that same gene in in dogs, not in all dogs, but it's present in dogs. And they were able to kind of rule out that dogs who have this gene, this sensory processing sensitivity is a separate thing from anxiety. It Now it can frequently result in anxiety, but it, it is not in and of itself um, uh, an illness or a problem. It's just a gene. It's just a gene that makes you more se- aware of and sensitive to things happening in your environment. And the cool thing is the researcher who got on the forum and was talking about it, she said that um, with the, with humans, they had done this um, survey of all of the people who were were genetically tested in this study. And there was a massive correlation between people who identified as being um, introverted and people who had this gene. So, um, so she was saying this was not a part of the, the dog, the dog study that we had read, but the researcher was saying um, that there, there, there's a, there's a case to be made that some dogs may be introverts um, because in most of the humans who had this gene, they, it resulted in somebody who is more introverted. Um, And, and that to me was a huge aha moment because we've all had those cases where the dog just seems really, really sensitive, even on good, when they're happy, when they're not reactive, they're just really easily influenced by their environment and no amount of training or enrichment makes that go away. And so knowing that there's a gene behind that, that could um, affect that was a huge light bulb moment for me. 
That's really interesting. It's it it reflects kind of makes me think about my own dog, and just how sensitive she is to those things. And she's kind of I would say an introverted dog. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she's also so sensitive to changes in the environment. So, um, and and you know things that she she really picks up on how we're feeling. <laughs> so and is very in tune to that. So if we're having a bad day, she knows it. You know, and it's interesting too. I think you've. You two have probably seen this within the recent months with the pandemic. Everybody's stressed, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing behavior changes in dogs that are reflecting that. One of the big ones I'm seeing is, you know, with spouses that are having conflict with each other and the dogs are now suddenly becoming aggressive towards one or both partners in the relationship because of this added stress. Are you two seeing the same kind of phenomenon? Yeah. Yes. We're seeing a lot yeah. of um, dogs who have been living and coexisting together well for months to years, suddenly no longer coexisting well. I think that's like half clientele right now. Right. I think part of that too is uh, I think there's a more more availability of resources in the home. So the owners are home more, more to compete right. over, more attention. And in some cases, I think some of the dogs aren't getting yeah. enough rest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So, sure. so let's jump into some more kind of tangible things that people can do for their dogs. Let's say, for instance, a dog that has issues on leash outside. A question I get is, you know, how much do I let my dog have these sniff breaks or what do I do for enrichment there? And how can I incorporate that with training? So can you speak more on that? Okay, so that was a little bit of a big question. So if I if I'm not answering it the way that is helpful, feel free to feel, feel free to drop the knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> you can keep talking. Um, so I I think I always tell people that their enrichment matters too, right? So when you're talking about if I take my dog on on a walk, how how long do I let them sniff, or how much training do I do? Um, the thing that I tell people all the time is if it's not also meeting your needs, then we need to to tweak what we're doing, right? And one of the biggest needs I think for for clients is sustainability. They we have to it has to feel realistic, or or we get overwhelmed and and we shut down. So. Um, so I tell people all the time, what, as you're moving through whatever training plan I've given you, I want you to ask yourself, is what I did today, could I do this every day for a year? And if the answer is no, then we need to to tweak what we're doing, right? So if you're taking your dog out on a walk and I told you, let your dog sniff, don't require this rigid heel because, you know, the, the majority of the benefit of walks is the mental exercise and sim- sensory stimulation. And then you come back and you tell me, okay, but he will sniff one spot for 40 minutes straight and I'm running late. Um, then I'm going to be like, okay, that's cool. Let's teach the sniffing on a cue. Let's teach something like the find it game where there's a start cue and a stop cue um, so that they have something very specific to sniff and something very specific to do. And when it's done, we get to move forward again so that you have control over your outcomes <laughs> and your dog has some control over theirs, right? So a lot of times, to me, it's about finding that balance between enriching the human and enriching the non-human in, in this interaction, in this relationship, and finding ways to meet everybody's needs. If we can find one or two things that meets the needs of, of both the handler and the animal, then that that's the, the golden ticket, right? That right there is what we're going to do. So um, d- did I answer that question? Totally. So okay. it, it really, you know, presents a salient point about it's so important to consider the human's needs as well. Something we sometimes forget as trainers and behavior consultants is that there's that other end of the leash where if they're not enjoying it, they're like not likely to follow through right. uh, and be consistent. You want to add anything to that, Allie? I don't think so. I think I'm like covered the point. <laughs> so what if you have a client that's kind of like, you know, I can, I, I don't want to do that. And then I don't want to do this or, you know, that's everything becomes a battle, especially when they might have goals that they want to do with their dog and they're not necessarily, maybe they're concentrating on some of the dog's needs, but they're just, you're, you're running out of options. So what do you do there in terms of yeah. clients? Um, and I, I think it depends on the situation, of course, in that, is it that um, they don't want to do it because we don't have like buy-in as to why that's important, or they have unrealistic expectations of their animal, which is 
a whole different thing. Um, but a lot of times mm-hmm. I see when I'm, I'm struggling with a client who isn't following through or, um, or is half following through and half not kind of cherry picking through their, their training plan. Um, when I ask them more questions, I realize that it's not because they don't want to or, or, um, they don't see the value. A lot of times it's, it's um, a matter of, well, I don't know how to do that, or I'm not comfortable doing that. Or um, I, I just had one where, where a client was, um, and I don't remember what the activity was. Oh, the dog was um, lying down (laughs) on a walk and not getting up. And then if they tried to physically move him, he was biting them. So, so I was like, well, if he just wants to hang out outside, like, let's just let him hang out outside. They don't have a fenced in yard. So you're going to have to sit out there with him for a few minutes. And as we were going through, there was resistance. And it finally came down to they were worried from a safety component. They're like, what if he slips out of his harness and we can't catch him and we live near a busy road? I was like, OK, that we can address that. Here's how to do this safely. And then they were able to get on board. So I think a lot of times when we have this pushback from clients, there's some underlying reason that maybe they aren't even fully aware of what that reason is. And it's up to us to to kind of sleuth through that, figure out what the actual problem is so that we can address the actual problem of it. And, and um, when we can do that, I see much less pushback. Yeah. I, agree. I agree. I think one of the things I ask clients when they're when they're having these problems is what are your pain points, right? Um, because a lot of times people are are uncomfortable with something like Ali said, and they don't, they're not really articulating it for themselves. So if you just ask them directly, what are your pain points, then they have to think about it. <laughs> and then we can have a conversation about that and then work from there. But I also I, I don't know if Dr. Pockle talked about this on your interview, because I haven't been able to listen to it yet, although I, I definitely I want to. Um, but I love what he he asks clients, I can't remember his three questions, exactly. But um, what, what are you willing to, um, how much time are you willing to give? What are you willing to compromise on? I can't remember his question, brilliant. but I love his approach. Obviously I don't use his approach because I, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it. I have a different way of phrasing it, but I love that. I, I think that's the lesson to learn from him and is that you, you can't be afraid to be direct with your clients about um, helping them to, to overcome their obstacles, right? You have to be, ask very clear, direct questions if you want to get clear, direct answers. And that's something that I think as a profession, we're kind of afraid of doing that for some reason. Um, but that to me is really important. I ask all the time, what are your pain points? That's, um, that's such a great question. I'm going to have to steal that one. <laughs> Do it. You know, and as you were saying, you were talking about, I actually was thinking about Chris and what he, one of the questions I think, again, I'm paraphrasing for Chris is that, you know, how, is there anything you're feeling that could prevent mm. you from doing this? So yeah. Emotions at the same time as really asking is what, what might you be feeling that could prevent you from carrying through with this? And that's such a great question because it helps to open up that conversation. Right. So, all right, before we wrap, I'm going to throw a couple of curveballs at you too. So one is, let's say, and I've had this, and and that's why my, it's kind of a selfish question, but I've had cases where, let's say you've got a dog that can't, it's it's just got issues with everything on the outside environment. So you can't take the dog for walks. Uh, The backyard space is limited and also very difficult because there's a lot of outside stimuli around there. So we can start working enrichment in the home, but the dog also has resource guarding issues with different things. So, um, and food, especially food related items, what do you recommend in that kind of scenario for enrichment activities? (laughs) Resource guarding games. (laughs) Seriously. Okay. Your dog is resource guarding. That's, that's awesome. We'll make that our first focus. And that game, we, we will use that game to meet multiple needs. Here's how we can play trades in a way that's going to get scent work in and mental exercise. And, and here's how we can play this game, this um, stationing game so that we can get physical exercise in and we can also teach him where to go when instead of managing, I mean, instead of guarding. Um, so yeah, I use the training plan as the enrichment plan for these dogs. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I was thinking of is because 
scent work and foraging just like takes up so many categories of needs. Um, one of the things that I've had clients do is say, okay, let's, let's use a spare bedroom that people aren't in usually. Um, go in, close the door behind you, put your hides, come out, let, let the dog go in, close the door behind them or baby gate or, or whatever, stay out of the room and let them search and repeat. Like there's so many ways that you can provide enrichment and really let the environment provide enrichment that doesn't require you physically being right there next to them. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. So um, I actually, while I was listening to you, I was thinking about the needs, uh, the chapter on special needs dogs. Can you just touch base on those and what, what that means and what you would do in those cases so, so the listeners can get some idea on that? Yeah. Um, so I think we define special needs as any, any physical or um, behavioral illness or um, not even necessarily illness, but um, any kind of challenge that is going to make their care um, different than, than an average dog, a, a healthy, normal, wh- whatever words you want to use. All those words sound really terrible. Um, but <laughs> but um, I, I think both Allie and I come from a background of working in shelters and rescue and wildlife rehab, where most of the animals we worked with would fall under that special needs category. And um, I think one thing that's really important is again, that, that goal oriented enrichment. So what is our goal? What is the obstacle? So if I have a dog who is, um, has some permanent neurological damage from uh, distemper as a puppy, and that dog has very poor control over uh, motor control, right? Over his entire body. Um, but I want to provide mental exercise for that dog. How am I going to do that? If he can't, if he, he can't um, be still long enough to follow a scent trail and get a little, pick a little piece of kibble up out of the grass. I'm going to make it easier for him, right? I'm going to get bigger pieces of food. We're going to start in a more visible, accessible environment. Um, We're going to start with something that might not look like uh, foraging at all because it's so easy. And then I'm going to let him tell me how, how far we can take this because I don't get to know what his capabilities are. I'm going to meet him where he's at and make it easy for him to do it now. And then we're going to shape that behavior just like we would any other behavior within any other animal and let him tell me what his limitations are. I think one of the things I just want to reiterate that Emily said is not making assumptions about what they're capable of. Um, you know, I, I hear so frequently people telling me, oh, well, he has three legs. And it's like, I've seen a two-legged dog run better than a four-legged dog. Like, <laughs> you know, we, we can't <laughs> make assumptions on what, um, what they're capable of doing. We have to observe the individual in front of us and go from there. Uh, I'm so happy you two have like focused on this topic because you're presenting so many out of the box ideas and which is great because that's the beauty of specializing. I think in a certain area is that you really get a lot of information about things that we might not think about in, in terms of a particular topic. So it's, it's, you know, everything that's in the book is just, you know, wonderful. So there's so much information in there and for people that need those outside of the box ideas, for instance, for the special needs dogs, I mean, it's in there. So, all right. So one more question to wrap it up for you is what case can you think of where it was an aggression case where you used a considerable amount of enrichment or enrichment really played a role in resolving that case? <laughs> every case no <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry i'm, I'm I was can't get out of it that easily i'm just teasing um so i think one of the most um i think touching cases for me f- in terms of the the huge progress that happened um was i had a client with a great dane who was sensitive to everything she couldn't he couldn't go in his backyard he couldn't go on walks he couldn't he couldn't do anything um and even in the house he was really stressed out so we started with um scent work which is kind of an across the board you know let's just make sure his brain is getting to do the job it was meant to do and see where we're going so we started with scent work we started with uh the flight flight cue flight training um and veterinary behaviorist 
because <laughs> his, 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 his maladaptive behaviors were profound. Um, and so the veterinary behaviorist got him on a medication protocol, but even before the meds, um, the medication protocol had really been, you know, around long enough to make a difference. We started to see that he could function. She could use scent work as a way to um, call him away from things that he was stressing out about and get him to kind of focus and calm down. Um, she has these beautiful videos of him learning the flight cue to fluency where she's in the house and he's out in the yard and she's filming him through the window and he's playing in the yard, which he couldn't do before. He's playing in the yard with her other dog. And then a dog on the other side of the fence starts barking and he just does this beautiful like arc and turns around and comes right back into the house. And and he came in with this happy face, like I did the thing. Um, and, and then, so just that, that first part of the training plan just made such a, a massive difference for him. And then we started incorporating seeking behaviors, like look at that and check it out and things. So, so that, okay, now that you know how to escape and that escape is an option. And now that you know how to use your nose brain um, and, and work through these um, stress stress points by focusing on nose work. Now we're going to teach you how to handle the stressors. Now we're going to teach you how to be able to look at them and approach them and investigate and, um, and just seeing the change from where he was when we started to where he is now. I, I just get goosebumps every time. Cause it's just so it, he's like the poster child for why enrichment is such an important aspect of addressing aggressive or reactive behaviors. And, bo and both he had a bite history and also he was super, super reactive. So he was both, um, so yeah, that's, that's my guy, my, my little micro case study for you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I, you know, congrats on the uh, good success there. That's um, such a wonderful story. How about you, Allie? You have anything that pops up um, for cases? The cases that are in my head are my current cases. So I'll, I'll use one of those. <laughs> um, so I am currently working with a case also alongside a veterinary behaviorist for this one, um, because his uh, he also has profound maladaptive behaviors, um, and and for this guy in particular, he's he's been more challenging in that um, he also has significant dietary restrictions and GI issues and um, other medical issues on top of on top of that. And so I'm, I'm having to spend more time in that health and veterinary category <laughs> than, than in other cases. Mm -hmm. And for him, the aggression is towards the, uh, to, towards the man that's living in the house and the, the man is done with him. He is over him. I want no part <laughs> of this. Mm -hmm. Um, does not, uh, is not yet on the Lima train. And, and uh, the, the <laughs> wife is working full-time job, has two teenage kids, and, uh, and now this dog mm -hmm. with, with severe anxiety and um, aggression issues. They're on their, trying out their third SSRI, fingers crossed, it seems to be the right one. <laughs> um, but for him, I, I think about him because there's so many aspects of this case that just like throw a wrench into it between him not being able to have what we would love for the management because he lives with his primary stressor and um, and the the health issues on top of it and a really um, tricky schedule so that training it you know there has to be just tiny little pockets of training throughout the day we we can't spend um, that much time on it so for him enrichment has been, kind of the saving grace <laughs> of this case and that we're like, okay, let's start flight training um, and, and teaching him his crate is the best place to be. Um, also separation related behaviors from the wife, which makes flight training harder, like all the things <laughs> throwing a wrench. Um, <laughs> but I, I just met with her yesterday and, and the husband has started asking him to go to, into his crate when he's getting growling and, and, uh, and air snapping and all that, which to me is a huge win <laughs> that the husband is starting to do that. Um, and, uh, she's building in that flight training and a little bit of, um, 
of scent work, like Emily was talking about, into the day and already seeing a lot of improvement just with those things because she can manage his behavior a lot better than she was able to now and, and not getting daily bites anymore. So um, I think for somebody like him, a lot of the issues are in that enrichment category, you know, that first, <clears throat> excuse me, category of, of the humane hierarchy of, well, we have to address his, his medical issues and, um, and getting the right medication on board for him has, has been a process. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> when you were going through that list of, you're just right. it more difficulty, more difficult. I was waiting for you to say, you know, he also eats children. There was a moment <laughs> where he, he started, um, air snapping at the youngest daughter when they were switching his last SSRI off of, um, I don't remember what the second one was on, was he's now on Zoloft, but um, yeah, it, it started <laughs> to be a thing for a week. And, and luckily <laughs> um, that has since stopped. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully. But it's a testament to, again, enrichment activities being such a profound part of a dog's day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thank you for doing that. Um, so where can people find you? What are you working on? Where, where can people find your stuff? Yeah, your social um, media? We, we're working on many things. We have a hard time not working on things. So, um, uh, people can find us on our website, petharmonytraining.com. Uh, we have a free resource on our site as well for those people who want to get further into working on their enrichment chart. Um, and that is petharmonytraining.com forward slash enrichment chart. That is a free resource for people who want to get further into it. We have a Facebook group devoted to enrichment, and that is Enrichment for the Real World Community. Um, We have our regular Pet Harmony Training Facebook page at Pet Harmony Training on Instagram. And then some uh, fun projects that we're working on is we have um, our Pro Campus membership group. Uh, We soft launched at the beginning of this year and we are doing our official launch in September. And this group is for behavior professionals who want to take um, their their business, their careers to that next level, whatever that looks like for them. So whether that's taking on more challenging cases, uh, whether that's growing and expanding their reach with their business, or even just starting their business. (laughs) So it's for people at any stage in their behavior profession, from people who are just starting out and not confident taking on that first behavior case and not sure if they have what it takes to take on that first behavior case, all the way up to people who have successful business and are wanting to grow and expand and, and reach more people. So, and working with more, more species. species too. Yeah, that's an exciting part of that. So that's uh, officially launching in September, but people are welcome to join at any time. Emily, did Allie miss anything? (laughs) (laughs) I think she was giving me the space to talk about the mentorship program because that's my baby that's been in development for four years. Um, So the mentorship program is, we designed it to help people who are brand new, who want to enter the animal training profession, um, work all the way up to behavior consulting. So um, it's, it's really intensive. It, It, it takes more time than I think normal training courses. There's 16 units. And um, so you can take up to four years to, to complete it. We've been working with an educational psychologist to make sure that our content is sound and it's structured well and it facilitates learning. But one of the reasons we started it is because we wanted to remove some of the barriers to getting into this field. Um, there either aren't clear paths or um, programs are really expensive or um, they require a lot of reading. And I've talked to a lot of people who are like, I really want to do this profession, but I have dyslexia or, you know, whatever, whatever the, the, the barrier was. So Ali and I wanted to remove the barriers to becoming competent, knowledgeable behavior professionals. So um, we've designed the program so that um, there are multiple modalities for learning. So people can learn in the way that is most comfortable for them and um, they can pay one unit at a time. 
We have work study options, which are currently filled, but um, we we wanted to do everything we can to make it affordable and accessible for people and to get people all the way up to behavior consulting, not stop at dog training and then being like, have a nice life. Um, so that was our intention with the mentorship program. What has actually ended up happening is about half of our students are brand new babies entering the field. And the other half are trainers who are like, I feel uh, I feel like I have a lot of gaps in my knowledge. And um, one of the things I talk about when I'm talking about the mentorship program is how my own experience, I devalued myself for a decade, because I felt like I had a lot of gaps in my knowledge. And so that resonated with a lot of trainers. And they were like, can I just start from the beginning so I can kind of fill in all those gaps. And so half of our students are already behavior professionals. Um, but it's incredible. We, we have so much fun together. And I, I really this this is a, a my baby. It's really near and dear to my heart. So yeah, we have the mentorship program, and then we also have a shelter behavior program called First Train Home, which is currently on hiatus because of the pandemic. Um, we do have one course that is a self study course that's available, but we're also developing other resources since we have no idea how long it's going to be before we can all go out and start doing workshops again. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's everything I think. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it all sounds amazing. I do not know how you do have time for all we that. We don't either. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's really the, the, the mentorship program really does sound amazing. And I appreciate you too. Emily and Ali, I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate everything you're doing for dogs. Everybody go out and Likewise. get their book, Canine Enrichment for the Real World. And I yeah, thank you for having us. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining me for The Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, or give a rating to the episode. And don't forget to hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the Loose Leash Academy for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues.